Well, welcome everybody to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I'm your host, John Robb. I am not joined here by my co-host, Jeff Ayers. He is unavailable to do this very exciting interview that we got coming up for you. I uh, want to remind you all that all of our interviews are brought to you by Kensington Books, so visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information. Also, Suspense Magazine, visit suspensemagazine.com for more information on all of that stuff. We are very excited to bring back to you one of our uh, favorite guests here. He is none other than New York Times bestselling author Brad Taylor with his latest book, Hunter Killer, which I just started counting and can't believe it's the 14th. So, Brad, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I want to thank you again for coming on. And, uh, I, and again, we kind of talked a little off the air. And looking back with One Rough Man, and you were kind of the debut coming out, and now you're 14 into it with good old Pike Logan at the helm with Hunter Keller. Tell us a little bit about Hunter Keller, and, and then let's get into this series. Yeah, Hunter Keller was kind of a um, – I had, uh, did a lot of research for Daughter of War, the previous book, and there was a tangential thing there of uh, uh, the Wagner Group, which is a, a group of Russian mercenaries were kind of in that book. And I started doing a lot of research on it because it's, you know, interesting, basically. And they're all over the place. They're everywhere. And the more research I did, the more I was like, man, these guys are taking over everything. And, they're, I mean, they're in Libya. They're in the Central African Republic. They're all over the place. And I saw a story about the Lulu oil fields down in Brazil and that the Russians were trying to get involved with that. And I thought, okay, that's, that's a plot. And, you know, when you, when you start, of course, you know, Russia is, of course, is a big topic that's, that's in our news for the last couple of years and everything else. And, but when you start finding out, like you said, Daughter of War, and then you kind of find out about more, and then it kind of takes you now into Hunter Killer and, and what you got Pike going into, how, how are you able to kind of make sure that you still keep the stories fresh as you go on? Actually, it's, it's, uh, uh, I guess some books are harder than others. But the truth of the matter is, I mean, the world keeps turning, and there's more stories out there. I get feeds every morning where I listen or I read uh, from all over the world various stories, and uh, sometimes there'll just be a little tidbit that just picks my interest, and I'm like, what in the world is that all about? And so I started doing the research on it, and it's like, that thing, that's what, you wouldn't believe me if I actually said that was fiction, you would say you're a liar. <laughs> it's an actual true story. And so, I mean, well, the way the world is, it's just, it's not hard to find something to write about. Yeah, when you start looking back like at the, the, the spy novels with you know with John LeClaire and, and 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 the great stuff that you know all the spy novels did back in the seventies and the eighties because you know those kinds of things. But now the military thrillers and we when interviewed Brad Thor, we kind of asked this: Is the military thriller kind of taking the place of the spy thriller now? Uh, I think it did. I think the heyday was you know right after nine eleven when everybody was running around and everybody's playing Call of Duty and it's all over the news. But I think that the, the heart of every book is going to be the characters, regardless of whether it's a spy novel or a military thriller or, or, you know, a romance novel. It's going to be the characters. And if you can't get the characters, if you can't get the reader to care about the characters, it doesn't matter what you're writing. Mm -hmm. And when you look back at One Rough Man and you see when Pike sort of came into the picture and now with Hunter Killer, has he changed kind of the way that you kind of progressed? Or what kind of surprises has he given you along the way through the series now? Yeah, well, that's the hardest part because both him and Jennifer, uh, uh, the, she's, I, they call them Pike Logan thrillers. Or actually, in my mind, they're Pike and Jennifer thrillers. So that's, but they both True. have to grow because when you're, I mean, in ordinary life, you, every human grows. Every human has a different experience. From day to day, things go differently. And Pike's case, he had uh, a complete broken moral compass, which he's slowly but surely building back, which gets severely tested in uh, Hunter Killer, this next book. 
whereas Jennifer has been black and white moral compass of uh, it's either the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, and if it's the wrong thing to do, she's not going to do it, whereas Pike works more in a gray world, which is kind of like what our national security affairs are every single day. I mean, if you look at, um, uh, you know, like the torture debate we used to have, it's like, you know, you'll never, ever, 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 ever torture anybody. And then somebody says, well, what if he's got a uh, nuclear bomb in the city? Well, in that case, it's okay to put a drill in his kneecap. So there's constant shifting back and forth of whether, you know, Immanuel Kant's, the philosopher's, um, Categorical comparatives. I mean, a lot of things are categorical comparatives. The, the uh, Ten Commandments, those are categorical comparatives. Thou shalt not kill. Well, then somebody gives you a rifle in the military and says, go kill that guy. You've now entered to uh, John Stuart Mill's greater good. If the outcome is better than the action at stake, then it's a moral act, whereas Immanuel Kant would say, nope, some things are never moral no matter what you do. And a lot of our uh, national security affairs revolves around that very question. Yeah, you always got the, but the what if. And you're like, well, you know, there's always, you know, there's always cases. There's always, there's always the what if out there somewhere. So that's why everything kind of is always in the gray area, which is why when you are writing military thrillers, the gray area is kind of where everything takes place. And is it hard for you to kind of keep that pace going throughout while still making sure that, you know, you do have those gray areas and not everything is black and white and there's a lot of things that have to be determined, a lot of things that have to be emotionally drawn from these characters? No, I think it's uh, um, just from my own past experiences. It's people have a, a sense of that, you know, you go into combat and everything you do is you make a decision in Hollywood films and movie and that, you know, the good guy always wins and the bad guy always loses. That's not what happens. I mean, you go out there and you make a decision. It may be a bad decision because we're all humans and you're going to live with that decision. And that's where the gray area comes in. I, I made the best decision available at that time and it didn't work out. And uh, so, I mean, Jennifer's kind of grown into the, okay, this, the world isn't black and white. There is not a perfect answer for this. And Pike's growing back into, okay, I'm not a, you know, it's, I, I can't just go learn a muck. I've got to make some decisions here that take into account the ethos and morals of, uh, you know, civilization, basically. Yeah. And you're writing about places that a lot of people that read your books have never been to and will probably never go to. So how much time do you sit there and think about making sure that the setting is also a character? Oh, quite a bit. I mean, if I can get on the ground, everything in Hunter Killer, I've set foot on that piece of terrain. So I was all over the Amazon, I was all over Salvador, I was all over Rio, everywhere we were at. I, I mean, I went down there and looked at it um, because you can't ever, at least I can't, I guess some people can, but I, I can't get the what we used to call sight, smells, sounds of the battlefield unless you're down there looking. I mean, you go down there and you're, you see something that you never would have learned from Google Maps. You just happen to find out. I mean, for instance, <laughs> it's kind of gross, but it turns out I'll there's a lot it. of the toilets down there in, uh, in uh, Brazil where you, you, you actually put the toilet paper in the trash can. You can't put it in the toilet because it clogged the toilet up. And I'm talking about hotels and everywhere. <laughs> so I would have never known yeah, that, that if I hadn't gone down there. That's, uh, that's Thailand, too. Yeah, well, they when we were in Thailand, Thailand, they said the same thing. They were like, hey, you know, put it in the trash can, don't put it in the toilet. And we were kind of like, what? We've never done that before. Like, right. what are you talking about? So that was definitely – but do they have bidets in Brazil? Because they had them in Thailand, and you use them. I never used it before for the first time, and I'm like, this is actually quite comforting. <laughs> well, I was just over in Taiwan, actually, doing research for the next book, and they had – because Thailand's got what we call the squatting hovers when I used to run around there. And where you know you basically you're squatting over the toilet, and then they have the actual seated toilets. And in Taiwan, they had both, and you had to figure out you know which one, which one's the city toilet because I don't want to do the squatting over. 
Right, yeah, we had we, we found that out in Japan. It was like, here's Western-style toilets where you can sit in, and here's Japanese-style toilets where it's basically like the whole, <laughs> where it's the whole. And it is. It's something that, you know, unless you really experience it, it's tough to kind of put it in the book. But when you went down there to Brazil and you, went, and you saw all those things and, and you were out there researching, what were some of the things that you might have thought you knew, but then you got down there and you're like, besides the toilet, but then you were like, wow, I had no clue that it was ever really like this. Uh, I guess most of it is uh, um, there is a high crime rate in Brazil, but it's not nearly as bad. It's almost black and white as to where you can go and can't go. I mean, I would read all about Brazil and about, oh, my God, they're going to steal my wallet and all this. Well, it turns out you get down there, and if you're in a tourist area, you're completely safe. There's absolutely nothing going to happen to you. You take 10 feet out of the tourist area, and everybody's like, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there. There's predators out there waiting on you. And uh, so just learning that, you know, the sense of their culture and how they're moving around, what they're doing, uh, I would have never gotten if I had gone in there. <laughs> but now, do you have a different kind of eye when you are kind of, you know, a private citizen going on that? Or does your special forces stuff kind of creep up and you're like, all right, let's take the lay of the land and let's see what's going on? Uh, that would be hard for me to answer because I only know myself. I mean, I definitely know I have an eye, but I don't know if it's any different than anybody else that's going down there. So when I get down there and I'm out stomping around like in Salvador, uh, you know, you take the elevator up and down, go down to the harbor, all that kind of stuff was fine. But right in between the harbor and where the elevator was, there was uh, – it just didn't look right. And so I'm like, I'm not going to go walking down that. <laughs> Half the time you talk to a cab driver. I mean, really, cabbies know more than anybody else in any True. city. And especially if they're unregistered cabbies because that means they're – they're willing to talk about the government that they that because they don't have a registration that's you know being held hostage by the government. You say I want to go here, and they say no, you're not going there. That's, I'm not even going there. We actually had a cabbie that uh, we met him the next day, and he said, yeah, you know, it took me forever to get home last night. I couldn't get to my car, and I said, what, why couldn't you get to your car? And he said, uh, well, it's just I parked in the daylight, and then when it came dark, it's too dangerous to go get my car. And I was like, oh, I feel kind of bad about that. Okay, that's the reason he was. The reason he was. The late was because of us. Oh, that's interesting. That's kind of cool. That's something you can kind of use in a book, though, because you just never would have assumed that, like, wait a second, I parked my car in the day and I can't go back and get it at night because it's too dangerous. I mean, that's just something I just never would have thought about. I would think that I wouldn't park my car in a place where I guess I couldn't go back at night in case something happened. Right, yeah, and you wouldn't know that unless you get down there. That actually does factor in the book. So. Yeah. <laughs> And, and now with 14 books in, and, of course, people always kind of ask you, um, you know, Hunter Killer is the latest one. One Rough Man is the first one. Can they just kind of jump into anywhere that, that, that they kind of want to? Or do you kind of, like, sit there and say, you know what, jump into this one first and then go around here and there and, and, and back and forth? Or you can do it at the beginning? Or, or how do you kind of tell people to do it? Well, I mean, if they're going to read the entire series, obviously I would I'd recommend starting and reading in publication order. But they can read any of the books. It doesn't matter. The only thing I always tell people is that there's a, there's a risk of getting a spoiler because it is a continuum. So if you read uh, Hunter Killer, they're going to talk about stuff that happened in Daughter of War. That doesn't affect the plot of Hunter Killer at all. But when right. you go back and read Daughter of War, you're liable to go, oh, I think I know what's going to happen here because they talk about it. Gotcha. That's true. But – when you're kind of signing something and you kind of see people bring up other books, do they, do they often want to, like, talk to you about plots and talk to you about certain things and, and say, wait a second, this couldn't really happen or this couldn't really happen or anything like that? Do you ever get into those conversations at book signings? Yeah, not so much this couldn't happen, but I do get a lot of conversations of how did you come up with this? I mean, where did you think about this and why did you think of that? 
Uh, I mean, I work very, very, very hard to make sure it could happen. Um, and you know, I'm not infallible. There's always something. I got a, I got a nasty grant from some guy in uh, uh, Australia because I had a uh, container ship in Ring of Fire. They're attacking the ports, and the container ship fell and split open, and the rivet split on the side, and everything spilled out on the ground. Now you got this huge nasty gram saying that there's no such thing as rivets in a container. Where have you ever been in a container vault just going crazy? You know, like, okay, I guess I made that. You know, I went to, we have a port here in Charleston. I went to the port and looked at the container. I was like, well, he's right. I just assumed there were rivets in the damn thing. But, I mean, he didn't alter the plot at all. It was just like, man, this guy vehemently is mad because I put rivets in the container. Isn't that amazing that when you do that, people pick out the weirdest stuff, and you're just like, yeah. out of all the things in the book, rivets is what got you going. <laughs> right. Not the fact that I flew to Al Jazeera, Spain, and actually went to the port and researched it, but I got that one thing wrong. Right. One thing, I didn't actually look inside the freaking container. I just figured that that's how they had to put them together. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's not like the river came out and shot the bad guy and killed him, and you're like, it, it, okay, I, it, it's something different, yeah. So that's always funny. But how, I mean, again, 14 books, um, how's it been kind of on your journey? I mean, that's, uh, you're kind of, you know, I mean, you're in it, man. You're in it 14 books in. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is what you do. This is it. So how's, how's that journey been when you look back at the beginning and to see where you kind of are now? Of course, you might, you know, Well, nobody's more surprised like I than thought. I am. Yeah, I mean, I never thought I'd have 14 books out. I didn't think I'd have one book out. So I, I, for a while, I was doing two books a year, which was an incredibly grueling pace, which is why I had oh. 14. I mean, One Rough Man came out in 2011, and now I've got 14 out in 2019. So there, yeah. there was, uh, I had a, about four years, maybe, I think it was four years, I was doing two books a year and the short stories. And that, in, that encompasses two book tours a year, two book research trips a year, short stories and all that other stuff. And so it it, it really ground me down until I could barely function, and so I went back to one year. Yeah, that's a lot, especially in military thrillers. I mean, I guess when you're doing certain certain other kinds of books, you can kind of get away with that, but with the kind of research like you have to do and the kinds of intricate details right. and the things that you have to bring up, I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, and it was. Uh, it got to the point where I was like, this is killing me. I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, talk a little bit about your ebook shorts. Um, when people pick them up, do those kind of – give them a little explanation of, like, what they're going to get when they kind of get into them. Well, I, I started writing ebook shorts just as a way to expand on the characters. And uh, so the Pipe Logan universe for the novels flows from one rough man up to Hunter Killer. I mean, it's a linear progression. But the ebook shorts, they skip all over the place. They don't uh, – even, in fact, the first ebook short I wrote was actually set before One Rough Man. Jennifer's not even in it. Uh, I wrote another one called The Target with Aaron and Shoshana, and that's set in uh, Buenos Aires in 1998. So they kind of skip around and just allows me to flesh out the characters, and, and um, I'll have some thought in my head about, you know, I wonder what happened here, and then I'll just write a short story about it. That's what happened here. And so they're, they're not uh, – uh, you don't have to read them in a linear progression because it doesn't really matter. Sometimes they're – Sometimes they connect right on. The last one I just wrote, um, The Ruins, actually, is the last one I just wrote, is actually in between book one and book two, and it's Pike going out to find the uh, temple in Guatemala. But the one before that flowed right into Daughter of War. I mean, it's, it starts off, and Daughter, when it ends, Daughter of War is beginning. Mm-hmm. So it all just depends how I feel, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Are those kind of... Um, you know, do you kind of have a thing that you kind of do to maybe like cleanse yourself a little bit after a book? Do you kind of write something, you know, do you kind of do like a little writing of things maybe people don't see to just kind of get yourself 
off of the military thriller stuff and kind of get yourself into something else before you can kind of come back? No, I actually, uh, it, it all depends on what's spinning around in my head. Like Exit Fee, I just I said the ruins of the last one. Exit Fee just came out two weeks ago. Uh, and that was about Amina because Daughter of War, Amina's in there. The hardest part about writing the books, you, you put your heart and soul into a book, but when you're done, you've created something that you can't just hand wave away. So Amina was a refugee from Syria that uh, uh, was the heart of Daughter of War. In fact, the title's named after her, Daughter of War. Uh, and at the end of it, I, I mean, I was going to be honest with you, I was going to whack her and be done with it, and I just liked her too much. So I didn't, and she existed. Well, now that she exists, i got to do something with her. I can't just start the next book and everybody go, what happened to Amina? <laughs> right. You know, she was there before. And so I was going around in my head, you know, what would the relationship be like? How would they get in, you know, involved in the, um, integrating the Charleston, that kind of stuff? And so that's where the short story came from, was me just fleshing that out. Yeah. Any thoughts of writing a separate standalone without Pike Logan or without Jennifer, just something totally different? Uh, I've kicked it around. I haven't, uh, I mean, I haven't, I've got enough Pike stories in my head right now that I haven't done it. People have asked for an Aaron Shoshana standalone, which is actually why I wrote the Target, uh, which is, I mean, we call them short stories. That thing, I think, was 30,000 words, so it's pretty <laughs> much sort of a novel. Yeah. So um, I, I've done those just basically on the short stories. So the recruits got Knuckles and Decoy in it, and that's the only people that are in it. I think Pike makes a cameo somewhere. But the short stories I've done, I haven't really done anything with the novels. Yeah. In today's kind of political um, world that we live in, uh, worldwide, not just the United States, I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, everything is just topsy-turvy, uh, so much stuff going on. Do you kind of allow the political environment that is going on to kind of seep into your books, or do you try to want to stay away from that? You don't really want to get involved in that. Um, you just want the stories to just be the stories and let the politics be the politics. Yeah, I stay completely away from politics. I don't put any politics in my books, and I don't like when people put politics that I'm reading their books. I, I don't. Uh, there's nothing in my books that's uh, political. In fact, it, the administration is completely different from either. When I first started writing it, you know, it wasn't Obama, now it's not Trump. It's completely different. The whole thing is separate. And everything in the book, politics-wise, if there's any politics in it, it's just something about the guys on a campaign stop or something like that. It's not about uh, anything going on in a polarized world. Yeah. I mean, of course, with the social media and aspects and everything else like that, um, do you get any comments from people asking you to kind of put politics in, or do they want to sit there and they say, well, you know, this person is this person or this and this? I mean, do you get a lot of that crap? I don't get a lot of it, but I have had it before where I had a Secretary of State that uh, he ends up getting blown up in Norway, and um, somebody commented and said, oh, I knew it, that's John Kerry, and I'm like, he looks nothing like John Kerry. <laughs> He's done, but I mean, they, you know, that's what somebody wanted to see. So I guess. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the Secretary of State. Shit happens, right? You can get blown yeah. up. Do, do, do you kind of have to pull yourself back on those kinds of things? Because, like you, you know, do you? Do, I guess you want to stay on the kills and, and on the action and stuff. Do you pull? Do you, send, do you tend yourself pull yourself back instead of just making it like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie or you know Commando where he kills fifty people and doesn't get a scratch? <laughs> oh no, definitely. The uh, I mean, like I said before, characters. That's what matters. It's all about the characters, and it doesn't matter what you're writing. If you, you don't have the characters right, then the reader doesn't care. I mean, if a bomb goes off in an empty parking lot, who cares? The reason you care is because the bomb's going to go off with two people inside the car. So that's what you're trying to care about. And so, no, I don't have to pull myself back at all. In fact, I get more times than not, I get something from an editor saying, more action, more action, more action, instead of, you know, pull back here, pull back here, pull back here. 
which I tell them, you know, like if you have just a bunch of disconnected action scenes, nobody cares. I mean, there's only so much that can go on. You've got to build up the characters and give the reader a reason to care. Right. Right, and and that's one thing that you know you you kind of you kind of see in, a, in some action books and, and especially in military thrillers, there is some disjointness. There is so much trying to put the action into it. But when I see a book, you know, like yours, and and I'll go back to the last one because I haven't had a chance to read Hunter Killer yet. So when I go to Daughter of War and I read, you can see how you kind of concisely put those kind of things together. But when you start you know, plotting and start outlining and start figuring it out. How much of the outline actually makes the book that does not make the book? I uh, I don't actually do an outline. I do what I call a framework, which is kind of like I know where the threat is. I know the general scheme of maneuver. I know the uh, threat vectors that I'm going to be looking at. And I know, I'd say 70% of the time, I know how it's going to end. Um, but I don't, I don't do a full-up outline. And I actually... The, uh, the everybody keeps calling them military thrillers, which is I guess my publisher calls them military thrillers. But there's not really a whole lot of military in it. Ghosts of War, there was a lot of military in it because that was a NATO thing. It was almost a Tom Clancy's, you mm-hmm. know, giant fight between East versus West. But uh, Pike Logan himself, I mean, he belongs to a task force that's completely illegal. Doesn't have any military connotations. There's nobody in it. They're all ex-military, but. Uh, it's not a military thriller in a sense where, you know, there's tanks and planes and things like that. Right. Well, if you could kind of name the genre, what would you call it? Like, I mean, more, it's not really spy. It's just more action, adventure? I'd say it's a murder mystery. Oh, interesting. <laughs> because that's what I read. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> so I don't actually, I don't know what I would call it, but, um, I mean, it's, I guess you could, you know, put it in three different different categories, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think, of course, you know, they everyone uses the the military thriller just as the way because there's you know special forces and CIA and and the things that kind of go on yeah. and you use that. So you know, I think it's easy, um, you know, because people's attention spans aren't that great anyway. So at least if you say military thriller, they kind of have the idea what they're getting involved in. Yeah, but I've if had you kind of say murder mystery. Say, so I'm, I'm, you know, talking to somebody about the book, and they say, well, I don't really like military books. I, don't, I, don't, I wasn't in the military, and I don't really like military books. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, this cheese or he's thinking that, you know, there's 8,000 tanks in the plains of Europe and the full invaded and there's nuclear bombs going off. And I'm like, that's right. not, I mean, if you've read Daughter of War, there's not a whole lot of military in that. No, <laughs> I mean, no. Certainly there are guns, no doubt. <laughs> there's some drilling sure. going on, but it's not like there's the 82nd Airborne jumping in to Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Now, um, now you retired as a lieutenant colonel, uh, special forces lieutenant colonel in the army, and you know when you decided that you kind of wanted to start writing and you did uh, you know one rough man, uh, you, you know you use a lot of your training and, and, and you know from that point forward. But now book fourteen and this stuff is kind of out of your system at this point, using things that you kind of had in the past and kind of use. This is all kind of brand newish, out of the box, I would think. Yeah, it is, but not to, to, the biggest change that's happened uh, since I retired. When I was in the military, the uh, uh, I was you know literally at the tip of the spear. You, the, you had these Q shops, just like you see in the movies. The, the neatest stuff in the world the CIA came up with, the bugs and the trackers and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But what's happened is it's all become commercial off the shelf, and so the, the civilian sector is faster than the military is. I mean, they just had a thing where. The military spent three years developing a drone, just a handmade drone like DJI drone, um, 
that they were going to use, and it took three years to develop, and by the time they got it all out in production, it was 8,000 years behind the latest conventional off-the-shelf commercial thing. So they started buying all these DJI drones that are made in China, and it turns out the DJI drones are sending all their stuff back to China, and the military had to put a thing out saying nobody used DJI drones because they're basically mapping everything we did. <laughs> no. I mean, how would you, uh, for, for, for a regular person like myself that has those things and does those things and uses those things, or, you know, how would we have any idea at all that this is kind of what actually happens? Well, there's a, I get, every morning I, I get uh, feeds from all over the world, and they're feeds from National Security Affairs, feeds from the Middle East, and some of them are hacker feeds. There's a lot of newsreels you can get for hackers, and it's, uh, it's amazing the stuff that gets hacked. I mean, in Hunter Killer, you haven't read it yet, but they uh, use the Alexa um, voice assistant to hack a room because it's something that's pretty easy to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, they do it inside a hotel so they can record everything that happens in the room because it's not hard to do. So there's all these threats that come out that people talk about. In fact, just yesterday, the only reason I saw this one was I bought a new TV for Black Friday, and there's a huge warning from the FBI. These TVs are all listening to everything you do, and they're sending it all back. So if you don't want them to penetrate your Wi-Fi system, disconnect it. Wow. So, so, I mean, it's, so, so you disconnect the Wi-Fi from the TV, that way they can't hack the TV and then do what they want to do. Right. Well, it depends on the TV, too, because my TV that I just bought would not let me decline. It says, we want to send all this data back, and I said, I decline. And it kept going back to, you sure you want to do this? And I said, yeah, I decline. Sure you want to do this? I couldn't get past it. I couldn't install the TV without saying, all right, I accept. And it hooked up the Wi-Fi, and you know, it's like sending all kinds of data back to wherever – Vizio database there is, and I just unhooked it from Wi-Fi and said, enough of that. Jesus Louise. I mean, you heard the thing about, like, Dr. Phil, I, I just heard on there where they had the people on the nest, where the people were, where the hackers were talking to the people in the house through their nest because they could hack into it and they could see everything they were doing, yeah. and they were talking. I mean, from that point forward, I mean, we don't have cameras in our house, and I, and I, will not, and I told her to my wife, I'm like, I don't want cameras in my house because I don't need cameras in my house. I'm in my house. So right. if we want to have the ring, you can point That's outside and they can, look at, they can look at the bush all they want if they want to look at the ring. But when you start looking at these things, and let's just say, how can, with all the research, how can people protect themselves from possible problems of this? Like you said, it's that easy to break into an Alexa. Well, how can people help themselves from doing stuff like that? Uh, the easiest way to help yourself is don't hook everything up to the Internet. I mean, there's a new thing called the Internet of Things, and you just mentioned one, the ring doorbell, and that's even on the – that's not the malicious side of the house. So the ring doorbell sends all their data back to somewhere, and then the cops can access the data. They've got an entire neighborhood as a surveillance net. There's a link system in New York City that they put up. Every block's got this thing called Link, L-Y-N-C, which it gives you free Wi-Fi, free Bluetooth, and it's a private company that's doing it. And why are they doing it? Because they want to target your phone for ads. And so every phone that passes by, it sucks the data out. And it's just, I mean, we're getting to, I mean, it's like, for me, it's like I don't ever have Bluetooth turned on on my computer or my phone ever because somebody's trying to ping that thing. And I don't ever have it turned on for uh, automatic access. The criminals do this all the time. So Starbucks, you go into a Starbucks and your phone automatically attaches to it because you go to that Starbucks every single day. So now you're on Wi-Fi and you're looking at your phone. Well, criminals figured that out, and they put a spoof router on a drone, and everybody who left the Starbucks, they still had that phone because this phone thinks it's talking to Starbucks when, in fact, it's talking to a criminal, and the criminal's now downloading everything from your phone. Jeez. Even if you VPN your phone? No, VPN, you're good. Okay. 
Yeah, because I have a VPN on my phone and I and I leave it on, especially when I'm in public places. Alan Jacobson told me that. <laughs> yeah, if you got a VPN, that's probably the smartest thing to do. VPNs are good. Yeah, but you know, everybody goes into like you go to the airport and it's like, hey, Charleston free Wi-Fi here in the airport. Yeah, I'm not getting on that. I think all yeah. the people are penetrating that thing. Yeah, and LAX is the same way, and of course, but as soon as I as soon as I hit that airport, I'm like, put the VPN on, and then if it wants to do, and because it's going to automatically connect to the to the Wi-Fi in LAX when I'm there, and it's just going to do it, and um, so now, yeah, now I VPN, and I'm just like, yeah, I'm not taking any chances anymore. I can't. I, yeah. just, I you know, I like my privacy. I don't think people are having my shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, it says so, Bluetooth is a new thing, so you're walking through stores and stuff, and they're sending you targeted ads. It's all about making money. But the fact remains that they're stealing your data to give you an ad. I mean, I don't know how many yeah. times I've looked at something on my tablet and then gone to my computer and I get an ad on my computer from something I was looking at on my tablet, and I'm like, how in the world did they get this? I don't even know, mm-hmm. but somehow they did. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing, of course. Um, I mean, there's a lot of scary shit, but it's the same thing that all the apps now are asking you to access your Bluetooth. I had to go through oh, yeah. all my apps, and I had to go one by one, and I had to make sure all of them, yeah. no Bluetooth, Especially no Bluetooth, location no services. Oh, They're all yeah, like, I, yeah, I want to know exactly where this guy is, and I'm going to track him for the next 24 hours so I can target him with ads. And it's, you know, some of the worst ones are the most innocuous apps, like uh, your weather app. They sell the <laughs> data to everybody. <laughs> your yeah. weather app, because it, it needs to know where you are to give you correct weather information, now has all your information because you leave it on, you walk around, it knows everywhere you went. And they sell all that data to somebody selling you ads. I'll tell you, authors like you got to kind of love the built-in storylines that, <laughs> that are out there right now. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's a, long, that's a long-winded way of saying that uh, it's, it's, it's not hard to keep in, uh, abreast of what's going on because everything that's happening on the battlefield, so to speak, in the spy versus spy world, is all happening commercial off the shelf. I mean, they're stealing stuff from... I mean, Google's the one making the bad stuff now. And, you know, the CIA and other intelligence agencies, they can't keep up. They just go straight to Google and say, give me that thing. Yeah, yeah, let them, let them develop it and then just take it from I mean, right. that, that's about all you can do, I guess, to make sure you keep people safe. So what's the best place for everyone to find out about you? Is it just uh, bradtaylorbooks.com? That's where all your uh, stuff is up there? Yeah, you can go to bradtaylorbooks.com. It's, uh, I've got excerpts of every book. Uh, I'm not sure I have Hunter Taylor up. Yeah, it's up there. Not yet. So, uh, but they, there's excerpts every book. There's uh, the books are in order there. I guess one of the questions I always get, what are your books? And so I made a whole page. Here's the books in order. Um, and uh, that's the best way. I'm on Facebook and on Twitter and all that too. It's all bradtaylorbooks.com. But the website's got most of the information. Yeah. And uh, are you doing any events? Are you going to be out any place? I know you go to Thriller Fest and you went to BoucherCon. Uh, Do you go to any other uh, conferences too? Uh, this year it's just Thriller Fest and BoucherCon. I mean, I'm doing the book tour, obviously, which is uh, going to be grueling. I'll be all over the country for that uh, at various stops. Um, but the two big ones are I usually have a security contract in September, so I was never able to go to BoucherCon. And this year they had it in October, so it's my first time to go. I, I had the time to go. And you like Todd? How did you like it? Yeah, it was a good time. Well, my in-laws live in Dallas, so my wife, of course. There's no way we're missing that one. <laughs> um, so the book comes out on January 7th, and, of course, it was called Hunter Killer, book 14 in the Pike Logan series. Well, you know what? We're going to just uh, we're gonna end that there. We'll just say it's Pike Logan and Jennifer Cahill series, uh, <laughs> book 14, Hunter Killer. And so, Brad, uh, is there anything else uh, that uh, you want to let everybody else know? You got anything else to share? 
No, just hope they enjoy the stories, and uh, I'm still I'm banging away on book 15 right now. All right, man. We're looking forward to it. I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure. Congratulations pleasure on book 14. Too. Thank you for having Shit, me. Shit, I can't believe And I interviewed you for One Rough Man, and, and when you said 2011, <laughs> I was like, yeah, eight years ago, and he's got 14 books. Holy shit, man. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. I love seeing that. Love seeing that. Thank you very much for having me. All right. You have a good one, man. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.